Dinner out is a go. Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the podcast that likes to see its helicopters suffer an elaborate method of death. Now, there was a time when it seemed Robert Redford would stay forever young. While his contemporaries slowly wrinkled and went bald, Redford remained supernaturally preserved. His boyish face, framed by that lustrous golden fop of hair, seemed to elude the ravages of time. But eventually, Father Time did catch up with him. The craggy lines came, his posture hunched, and gradually that perfect, bouncing, blonde coiffure seemed to look like a mockery of the ravaged features below. So after his appearance in Indecent Proposal, Bob promptly took his crow's feet behind the camera to continue his film career as a director. All of which, by roundabout route, brings us to the film we're reviewing on this show, 2001 Spy Game, the film which saw Redford return to acting. Recently, the Sundance Kid has just announced his second retirement from acting, and given that he's in his 80s now, he probably means it this time. And talking of people whose best days are behind them, and who should be permanently pensioned off, it's my good friend Dara. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm still I'm still hanging in there. I haven't quite got to the 80 years uh, of age of Robert Redford, but this podcast has taken it out of me, I'll be honest. You, you're feeling mentally that age, if not... Mentally... If not- Mentally, mentally incapable of carrying on. (laughs) Uh, Now, Robert Redford has just retired from acting and his character in this film is about to retire. So it made me wonder, you know, Dara, you know, how would you like to spend your retirement? (laughs) This is this you sprang. This this wasn't in rehearsal. Will, what's going on? (laughs) I'd like to, you know, I think it's a bit of a cliche, but somewhere nice and warm where I can, uh, you know, my do- dodgy knee and dodgy elbow, the, the warm weather will um, help me slip slowly and quietly into uh, into the great beyond in comfort. I think that's what we all wish for, really. And, uh, you know, what would you be doing in these uh, these sunny, warm climbs? You know, podcasting with me, I hope. It may be. It could be septuagenarian podcasts from from the Caribbean. That could be our <laughs> that could be our thing, our little niche when the exploding helicopter you know, fashion wears out if it ever will. Will I know it's is the you know this is going to carry on for many many years. Well, just think how many exploding helicopters we'll have seen by that point. It'd be like the Expendables, but for for uh, helicopter podcasts. <laughs> so it's a terrifying thought. <laughs> well, let's uh, get back to the subject of uh, movies and films and uh, you know I wondered uh, you know given Robert Redford is uh, toddling off to uh, acting retirement I wondered if there were any other actors out there who you'd like to see retire Dara you know what I I think we've discussed this in previous podcasts, but I'm not a big one I'm not an, a follower of actors so I won't watch a film if a specific actor is in it specifically unless it's a good film so I, I like I pretty like I like Will Ferrell in a lot of things he, he does but I won't watch a Will Ferrell film if it's poor just for the sake mm. of it even though I like him on the flip side of that there's not many people that I just dislike and every time I see them I will just you know shy away from watching their film if it's a good film I will watch any actor that said I think we've talked about and the name escapes me, maybe because of my hatred for him. But the ah, uh, who's the guy in um, who took over the Bourne identity? Uh, oh, Jeremy franchise. Renner. Jeremy Renner. I had, <laughs> I had a kind of. So what is it with his name that you can never say it? <laughs> I just can't bring myself to say it. There's something about him which I dislike, and I can't put my finger on it. 
And we watched that film. We watched a film with him in it uh, not so long ago, the sniper film. Mm. And I, he was actually quite good in it. And yeah, I still got this in my mind that I don't like him. Well, your friends at the uh, True Bromance podcast have got a thing about Jeremy Renner's thumbs because really? they believe that they are they're disturbingly long and like double jointed, and he's got, like, this? got kind of like uh, webbing between them. What? First of all, shout out to the True Bromance guys. <laughs> I got I got a lot of time for them. Um, I like to know the source of their researches, their empirical research, because you know this is very specific detail. Is he an alien? <laughs> I, I don't think I the he. Info. Uh, I don't think he is a. I don't think he is an alien. Huh? But um, you know, he's maybe been crossbred with something you know not strictly human. But uh, yeah, could you just remind me how to pronounce his name again, Dara? Renner. <laughs> and what's Thank the, you. And what's the first name? Rara Ray. <laughs> There are too many R's in there. Mm. Jeremy, Jeremy Renner, Jeremy Renner, Jeremy Renner, <laughs> Jeremy Renner. That's, that's enough. Of it. Let's not talk about him anymore. It's upsetting me. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Right. I think it's time that we uh, put on our false nose and glasses and infiltrated the trailer for Spy Game. I think I've trained you as an agent. Central Intelligence. You'd be working for me, mostly undercover. Undercover. Give me another one. Guy in the bench. Loitering. Up to no good. Definite threat. Guy in the gray sweater. Gray sweater. Gray sweater? Gray sweater. Don't forget what's right in front of you. Gray sweater. Low IQ. Terrible hygiene. Lousy with the ladies. Definite threat. You work for the CIA. What is your connection? I have no connection. I thought spies drank martinis. Scotch. Never less than 12 years old. Spy Game came out in 2001. Robert Redford plays a veteran CIA agent who's just about to toddle off into retirement. But on his last day at work, he learns that his protege, played by Brad Pitt, has been captured by the Chinese government while carrying out an unauthorized mission. Fearing a diplomatic incident, the CIA's spineless bosses want to wash their hands of Pitt and let the dastardly Chinese execute him. Will Redford find a way to rescue his friend? And can he do it before the leaving speeches and carriage clock presentation? Spy Game stars Redford and Pitt in the leading roles. It's got an interesting supporting cast, so there are small roles for acting luminaries Charlotte Rampling and David Hemmings, and then a host of familiar character actors like Benedict Wong, Stephen Delane and Marianne Jean-Baptiste. It was directed by Tony Scott of Top Gun and True Romance fame. The film has a 7.1 rating on IMDb and a 75% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics' reviews were positive, with the uh, Village Voice saying that beneath the film's nostalgic veneer and tooth-rattling effects lies a mature ambiguity that's unusual for a Hollywood blockbuster. So, uh, Dara, what did you make of Spy Game? It makes me feel safe and confident that my my take on films does tend to chime pretty directly with the kind of Rotten Tomatoes IMDb fan base because I thought this was a pretty good film it's one of the better films we've seen lately it's not quite up there into a sort of classic status but it is a mature story it's an interesting story I, I think uh, the casting of this is kind of one of its strong points the kind of playoff and payoff between Robert Redford and Brad Pitt's characters as a kind of mental protege is very good it's very engaging I think the I think Robert Redford got the slight better scripting in this film because he has he's more enjoyable for me than than brad pitt's character he doesn't get to do a huge amount i thought it's slight it's slightly long 
for a film. I'm obviously they're trying to tell a story of two people's interacting lives over kind of a 25, 30 year period. You know, building up how they mm. one trains the other and they 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 meet again on diff, in different locations and to, to culminate in the kind of um, Robert Redford's last day at the CIA, having to try kind of his his coup de grace is to try and help. Brad Pitt uh, survive imminent Chinese execution. Oh, yeah, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the film. There's a lot of good things in this film. It's not perfect though. Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what you said there. Um, I really enjoyed this film, but um, it does. Yeah, it's certainly not a perfect film, but. You know, my view is probably a bit coloured by the fact that I love spy films. Well, in fact, I, you know, I basically love anything uh, to do with espionage. So, uh, you know, spy novels, spy films, factual books about the history of, of espionage. Uh, you know, I kind of uh, I love it all. So uh, this film is really in my wheelhouse. And as you're saying, it's a, it's a really slickly told thriller. And, you know, you've got in this film, for me, as a sort of fan of this type of genre, you've got a really good battle of wits taking place. Um, within this in this film so essentially Robert Redford is I guess the the hero of this film and yeah you know, he's outwitting the the enemy which is in this case the Chinese but he's also outwitting his bosses as well and you know he's using his guile he's using his cunning he's using his um, mental sharpness to kind of uh, to achieve those particular aims so it's a really enjoyable as I say battle of wits yeah that's the best bit about the film for me so for anyone who's not seen this film you've got a 24-hour window where Brad Pitt's character is going to be executed for espionage by the Chinese authorities for breaking into a prison to rescue his girlfriend. And in that time, the CIA get hold of Robert Redford because they know that he's got case files on Brad Pitt because he's trained him up in order. What they want to do is get some information from uh, Redford, which justify them not acting because they don't want to scupper a, a, a trade deal with the Chinese. Well, they don't actually you've actually sort of given away one of the kind of significant reveals, which is later in the film, which is the CIA don't actually know like what on earth is Brad Pitt doing in that? Why has he done this off the books operation going into this prison? They at the beginning of the film, they don't actually know what that is. So a lot of this conference that is taking place is trying to work out like what on earth was he doing going into this prison? prison what's the story what's the story here as you were saying in the context of having this 24-hour window as they try to decide what they're going to do here and they are basically leaning towards as you said letting letting you know pit you know take the consequences for his own actions because there's this uh there's this sort of trade deal that uh that the kind of american government wants to do and they don't want people rocking the boat yeah, which is quite apt, obviously, Chinese superpower at the moment. So it's kind of, if you think about it, quite a timely plot. So in order to for you to flesh out the story between uh, Redford's character and Pitt's character, it's told through a series of flashbacks. So um, Redford trained up Pitt when he was a naive uh, Vietnam uh, sniper, recruited him from the army, trained him in Germany, and then he's with him on a various different missions around the world before the kind of final one in Beirut where they have a parting of the waves because Redford's character is very uh he's very um very cynical, isn't he? Yeah, he's very cynical and he does things by the book, whereas um Pitt's character is supposed to be a little bit more humanistic and in the end that it does you know, that's his undoing 
Well, let's dig into the structure a little bit more. So essentially you have this, um, the scenes which are taking place, uh, contemporary scenes which are taking place where the, the CIA bosses are trying to work out what's going on with Pitt's character. Why did he do this mission? Um, and so that particular part of the, of the film, then, you know, you go back into the flashbacks to tell that story. So essentially the kind of, the film is broken down into sort of two elements, which is how Robert Redford is going to get Brad Pitt out of this particular mm. jam. But then also there's a sort of a mystery element around why Brad Pitt's character is in this particular... In prison, yeah. yeah. This so there's a kind of, there's a, a why he's done it, and there's also a plot line which is about how's he going to get him out of it. And I don't know which one of those two elements worked best for you, because for me... The bit that I was really engaged in was the how Robert Redford is going to get Brad Pitt out of this situation. For sure, absolutely. That that works for me so much better um, because it's kind of like a pitting the wits and it's some of that using that old school, you know, he's he's the, the classic, you know, instead of it's uh, three weeks to retirement, black police captain, it's uh, Robert Redford's literally <laughs> on his last day. He's about to get his uh, pension and drive off uh, in his sports car to no doubt somewhere hot and sunny to rest his knees. That bit works for me so much better. I don't know why. I think Bad Pitt's character in this is not, he doesn't really, it's a bit cold in this. I don't, you don't really get a full sense of his motivation. I don't know whether that's to do with... Um... Well, I don't think you get a good sense of the motivation of either character. I mean, what ultimately do you really know about Robert Redford's character in this particular movie? Next to no, nothing. You don't. No, you and, don't. and I think the same goes for Brad Pitt. You know, he volunteers to be a soldier in Vietnam. We learn that, but we don't un- we don't learn his motivation well, yeah, exactly. for, for volunteering for that. And he then joins the CIA and we don't really understand what his motivation is is for doing that and so i think there's lots of really good elements in this film but there are some you know there are some weaknesses and how well you know those two characters is a big one for me i completely agree and that would have elevated this film into something that you know a classic and sometimes you lose a little bit of interest in you know it's, it's just the song and dance between how how they do it and the little clever things they do those bits are good but the motivation for it, for everyone to believe in a film, believe a story, you've got to kind of empathise with the person. So you've got to kind of understand where they're coming from. And I think you're absolutely right. They're kind of hollow, hollow boxes. These mm. two. You don't really know where they're coming from and why they behave in a certain way. I know there was one thing that you were quite, um, uh, you didn't really understand why Redford's character was suddenly turned from a kind of uh, by the book, 30 year career CIA agent to suddenly on his last day doing one over on his colleagues and yeah, helping out his uh his former protege because he didn't really tally with the rest well, it's, like, it's a slightly different problem that i had which is that you know within the film within the context of the film redford's character is portrayed as as somebody who is very focused on getting the mission done focused on loyalty to his country and country, the, yeah. the human assets that he you know meets and encounters and has relationships within the film they are serving that wider aim and if they Mm -hmm. need to be sacrificed then he will sacrifice them and what the problem i had was that it then seems to go against robert redford's character at the end of this film that he should step in and as you say kind of go against his bosses go against the cia to to launch this sort of one-man mission to save brad pitt it just doesn't seem to tally with what we've learned about his character earlier in the film i know what you mean and obviously him spending basically his life savings on the on a, a bribe basically to the chinese uh, power 
station mm. owner in order to get a blackout on the prison so the SEAL team can go and rescue the girlfriend under cover of darkness. It's supposedly explained in the film, and I, to be honest, I had to, on second review, only pick this up, that Robert Redford's character tips off the Chinese authorities because Brad Pitt's girlfriend was involved in the Chinese, uh, Chinese embassy bombing in London. So they had to show, and he was worried that Brad Pitt was getting too close to her. So he tipped off the authorities to get her snatched away. She ends up in prison. Robert Redford underestimated Pitt's relationship with the girlfriend <laughs> and didn't expect him to like break into a Chinese prison, expecting to probably just go out to another bar and get another girlfriend, which I would have thought so because in the film... You can't the judge everyone by your own standards, though. Well, you know, I, I've got very high standards. <laughs> I expect people to live to them. I, I would, I, You don't really see that connection, and that's one of the big drawbacks in this film. I don't know many people I would break into prison for. I would, you know, if my if my girlfriend went to prison, I'd think twice probably about breaking in. And I've been I've been with her for four years. So someone you just met in a Beirut flop house, I'm not sure you're going to travel the world and break into like a high security prison on the space of a couple shags. But that is what happens in this film, and that's kind of the bit that you have to suspend your disbelief. Okay, so a couple of shags, no. Four years, still no. Like, what's the threshold you have to get over, Dara, with you that you would break into a Chinese prison? You got, you got to put a, you got to put a, put a ring on this finger, baby. <laughs> you got to put a ring on this finger. No, okay. I ain't, no, I ain't no piece of meat. <laughs> okay. Well, what you do get, I mean, we've we have poked quite a, a few holes in the film here, but what you do get is, I think, a really slickly told story here and you obviously got uh, tony scott here as the director and you know he's directed a lot of very high concept movies um, he's very well known as a, a sort of visual stylist you know what did you make of his directing style in this movie and do you think it fitted with the material well tony scott's resume is without compare really because he's done some great films true romance top gun these are all, in my book, classic films, re rewatchable films that, you know, deliver it again and again. For me, personally, this sort of film, I found, well, I found in the beginning his style was a little bit too flashy for me. It's all, he loves a jump cut. He loves an editing technique, a fast forward. It's kind of uh, very, very early 2000s. If you think of a lot of kind of cop films and cop mm. TV series, they kind of all, maybe they copied him. I don't know who copied who. He's been, you know, he is a master director he's been doing it for a long time so maybe people did start to copy him um i don't really like it i kind of it, it takes me out of the story if it's something that's kind of very realistic you're trying to tell a story about you know a long relationship i would have preferred a little bit more of a natural directing style and to be fair to him as the film goes on it kind of settles down it's almost at the beginning he wants to mm. lay his cards on the table i mean this, this is all exciting and look at all these you know things fast forwarding and rewinding and uh, <laughs> you know little little clips uh, with, with where they are in the world he kind of just um he overdoes it a little bit at the beginning who am i to say mm. how a director should do things because i felt that the directing when he, he was actually on location a lot of the filming was done in a you don't feel like you're you're you, you feel like you're a bystander watching certain scenes, a lot of sort of extras, and it was done in a really kind of naturalistic way, which I really enjoyed, really preferred. That it gets you into the kind of rhythm of the film and the sort of a vibe of these people on location doing dangerous things in dangerous places. For me, it kind of hit. I don't know why, but he kind of settled it down, and I actually quite enjoyed it towards the end. 
Well, I think Tony Scott was concerned about the amount of middle-aged white people in a room talking to each other. And so I think, I think that a lot of his visual ticks and tricks are down to wanting to kind of jazz up what you're watching because he's sort of you know worried about the you know attention span of the audience and i wonder if actually this film would have benefited from you know a much different style of directing a really good uh, spy film in recent years was tinker taylor soldier um, spy and um, that film had a very you know slow methodical pace but it was completely gripping you know there was no fancy editing tricks there and it was essentially you know that movie was just all about people talking to each other but it was incredibly gripping and i kind of wonder if this film would have benefited from that type of style of telling Mm, i think uh that's another beauty is in the eye of the beholder because i found tinker taylor a little bit slow if i'm honest okay um I think if you're maybe if you're a huge spy aficionado as you are, you kind of revel in the eking out of the story and the eking out of the dialogue and the relationships. I found Tinker Taylor a little bit slow okay. and a bit worthy, and and maybe that is the reason. And you're quite you're you're very perceptive to pick that up. That might be the reason why he decided to sort of make the location middle bits a little bit more uh, kinetic in order to kind of just keep the excitement ticking over but for me i was quite happy with the cia boardroom bits and the him mooching around his office trying to get bits of paper and spying little code names on bits of paper mm. around the offices of the cia buildings i thought that that's all quite nice and quite clever and quite old school and i enjoyed that bit more well let's talk about that particular part of the movie let's talk about the spy craft that was on display in this movie and yeah you've given some really good examples of it because yeah this is i guess sort of spy craft at its simplest so it's essentially about you know robert redford you know using his observation skills it's about him bluffing people his ability to kind of read what people are, are thinking or feeling and manipulating them um to his uh, you know particular ends and you know i really enjoyed that type of low-tech you know spycraft where you know it's just basically you know one person just using their you know using their wits using their intelligence to bend a situation to their ends or needs yeah it's very clever actually um and yeah it's uh it's kind of the antithesis of bond really there's no fancy gadgets or ejector seats to get him out of trouble it's all kind of clever it's all charm tradecraft and obviously to do that you need a very a charismatic actor so the again he fits the bill perfectly is basically his his the skill is just really opening his eyes and looking at stuff it's uh <laughs> there's nothing really there's nothing really revolutionary in what he does he just looks at bits of paper that don't makes you have, wonder why uh, more people don't do it yeah just look at stuff if you're a, if you're a, <laughs> if you're an fbi agent you know you open your eyes a little bit wider and you might uh find uh isis conspiracies and as again, it, it tallies in, I think, with our favourite bits of the film with are with him just playing people off against each other, making phone calls and trying to pretend that he doesn't know what's going on when when he does. Um, yeah, it's very or I, vice versa, pretending he knows more about what's going on when he doesn't. And absolutely. And those bits were the most enjoyable bits of the film for me. Mm. 
I mean, the the kind of as you I think you mentioned at one point that you you really enjoyed the kind of the boardroom scenes at the CIA, and I think those are those are my sort of favourite scenes in the movie as as well. And uh, I I've heard uh, Tony Scott sort of talking a little bit about um, making this film and how he was staging those scenes, and he had in his mind when he was putting those scenes together the idea that you know, essentially that every one of those scenes was like um, a hand of poker, and it was about you know the players trying to play their cards or play the information that they've got in the best possible way trying to read what information or what cards there the other people sitting around the table had and um, you know i think whatever the whatever else the flaws are he actually makes those scenes really work and i think that's you know i think that's a great analogy as to how he tried to stage the stage stage those scenes because that's really how they come across yeah that's credit that's credit to him because that's that's kind of how i feel about them as well and they work really well because you at one point he obviously he gets tipped off by one of his former CIA colleagues that um, his protege, Brad Pitt, is in prison and he kind of releases that information to him before anyone else knows. So he goes in and pretends that he doesn't know about what's going on and is looking around to try and work out what the angle is. And they're obviously they can't tell him too much because it's still classified and he's on his last day. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game between the two. Mm. And uh, I think we're going to talk about some of the actors in the film. I particularly liked Stephen Delane. <laughs> uh, you know, you and me, Will, we, we've got a history here. We love a good movie asshole. <laughs> you know, in the 80s, we've, we've, we've blogged about this before, but you had plenty of these kind of really uh, risible characters that uh, you can mm. really enjoy hating. And Stephen Delane maybe a performance of a lifetime. I know he's in Game of Thrones, but <laughs> I really liked him, uh, his character in this. He's a real nasty piece of work, yeah. this kind of like corporate man trying to screw everybody over. Eventually he gets his comeuppance. Well, I um, had him down as one of my favourite actors um, in this particular film. And yeah, I think you are you you start to describe him uh, very well because he plays this, um, you know, CIA desk jockey. And, you know, he's this really Weasley character who is out to get Redford. And there's a really uh, there's a really uh, I really like the moment where he thinks he's got one up on Redford and uh, he sidles over to the uh, buffet and starts uh, helping himself to some food and he sort of gives a little gives a little <laughs> hip swivel of a dance <laughs> and it just it just totally that little one moment i think said volumes about the character the type of character that he was uh trying to play in this film yeah so in 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 all good films you do need a kind of uh, a good bad guy to kind of um you know You've always got the hero, so you've got to have a and you know the antithesis of that. And Delane's really good. He's kind of very watchable in this, and he's kind of that kind of smarmy, smarmy slyness that you we don't get as much. I don't see that as much in films these days. So I really, I really did enjoy his performance. Obviously, the whole thing is the whole film is the pairing of uh, Redford and Pitt. But I thought um, I quite like. I want to give a big shout out to, and I, I would like it if he actually listened to this podcast. But there is a very small. Well, it's, it's it's reasonable part. It gets a few more lines than I would expect. Is um, I don't know if you spotted UK Iranian comedian Omid Jalili in this film. I did spot him. He he's I've seen him. So for anyone who doesn't know him, he is a UK-based Iranian comedian who always plays swarthy Middle Eastern character parts. In I think he's in Gladiator, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm playing... sure that he's in Gladiator. Yeah, he's like a slave trader. He always plays kind of like untrustworthy um, sort of uh, 
Middle Eastern hairy people. He's in this. Are you thinking that this is a career path that you've missed out on, Dara? <laughs> this is he's taken he's taken my jobs basically. <laughs> This could be me. You can make it like a, you know, this could be my secondary career. And he, he I've seen him live actually in, uh, seen some of his comedy because he's a stand up comedian. And he, he does joke about the fact that he does get typecast. His agent probably jokes, you know, when he's on the phone to him about the, you know, got you another thing, Omid, you know, you're going to have to play a terrorist, but it's good money and it's opposite, you know. Whoever. Whoever. So, yeah, I, I, I liked him. He didn't have him, he wasn't very comedic in this and he's actually a very funny man. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you, because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great fits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. This takes place during the infamous Vietnam flashback where Redford orders Pitt to assassinate a top NVA official. While Pitt lies in wait for his target, he's spotted by a helicopter which opens fire on him. Pitt returns fire with a machine gun damaging the chopper's engine. The wounded whirlybird spins slowly towards the ground before disappearing behind a small hill. We hear a crash and a huge fireball suddenly erupts into the sky. Charlie don't surf and after this chopper fireball, he don't fly either. Dara, what did you make of this chopper fireball? Oh well, very disappointing <laughs> from 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 someone with such pedigree like Tony Scott. The man made Top Gun for God's sake. He should know how to, you know, explode create an, an aircraft, explode an aircraft, an acrobatic spectacle in the air. And yet, what do we get? We get a chopper go down behind a hill line, a tree line. Don't get to see any of the cockpit. No writhing around. You know how much I love a burning <laughs> pilot writhing around in you agony. You like people in agony. You like watching I love people it. in agony. I love it. I love it. And yet, there's nothing here. There's nothing to go on apart from a well-rendered and it's a original explosion. No CGI, so that's I can give him that. But you're, you're missing a big trick here, Tony. Well, it's the oldest cheat in the book, isn't it? It's uh, it's one of the uh, the greatest uh, exploding helicopter like directorial no nos, which is uh, you know having Shortcuts. yeah having your having the vehicle disappear behind something else and then just sort of exploding some you know pyrotechnics to suggest that it has actually exploded and. Uh, cool really yeah. really poor it is i mean it is it's kind of uh, hall of shame stuff really from a director um as much as we've praised tony scott for this film i think you know we we can't overlook how he has let exploding helicopter fans down uh with this let us all down movie. very badly but uh i have to say adara this is uh I, you know i know you you like tony scott films there's a He's also exploded another helicopter in another movie. So uh, there's a, a movie called Domino, which um, oh. came out uh, a few years after that. And there's an exploding helicopter in that. But the same thing happens. The helicopter disappears behind some buildings before before exploding. As Oscar Wilde once said, if you fail to explode a helicopter once, 
that could be folly. But to do it twice, that is something else. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but I'm sure Oscar Wilde said something very similar. I think maybe we've we've found we found maybe a glitch in the Tony Scott armory here. He just doesn't know how to explode a helicopter. This is ba- basic stuff for a man of his quality. I would have thought. Well, I mean, you do have to start uh, wondering, um, as as uh, as you so eloquently, uh, you know, paraphrase the words of, <laughs> of Oscar Great Wilde. You know, uh, once looks like misfortune and, you know, twice looks like carelessness or in yes. this case, possibly incompetence. Because, yeah, I mean, two times he's failed to uh, deliver the goods. You have to start wondering what is his uh, what's his particular problem. But um, um, we do need to give uh, uh, perhaps Tony Scott a little bit of credit back because uh, apparently there was one scene in this movie where Tony Scott wanted the the sequence to be shot with a helicopter because he wanted to have it swooping round the location mm. and the uh, producers wouldn't stump up the money for a helicopter to do those shots so uh, you know Tony Scott to his credit he thought I want this shot so bad he paid for a helicopter himself to film the particular sequence so um, out of his own pocket out of his own pocket Wow, that's, you know, that's good stuff. He goes up in our estimation. He goes up in our estimation. But I, if only he'd, uh, you know, dipped back into his wallet and, uh, you know, paid for a helicopter to actually blow up properly. Some carcass or something. I mean, I saw a little clip uh, on YouTube uh, in the making of this film. And apparently there's a few tricky, hel- there's quite a few helicopters actually in the film. What with the uh, Vietnam flashback scene and also the uh, SEAL team um, entering the prison. They had to land on a tiny, tiny Mm. roof in darkness. But no amount of, you know, scenes with the helicopters will help us forget the fact that he really dropped the ball on this helicopter explosion. And the uh, the other thing, this is uh, very, uh, very geeky and very techy, but um, I, I did a little bit of research and the helicopter that we see in this particular scene is a Mil 2 helicopter. And hello. I... Hello, Internet. <laughs> it's a Mil 2 helicopter. <laughs> I hope you should know about this. Well, I think you should know about this, Diary, because oh. its presence in the Vietnam War is... Um, is very extraordinary because, uh, you know, according to the information that was available to me, it was essentially bought by Eastern Bloc countries and, you know, was never, um, never really, was never certainly didn't seem to uh, see service or was bought by, um, by the Chinese or by Vietnam. Ah, so this is, this is some sort of continuity, helicopter continuity era where they've, they've chosen the wrong model of helicopter to do the job. It is essentially a kind of helicopter uh, continuity era. Wow, this is a whole that's a whole new uh dynamic internet niche uh you've discovered there. A sub niche of a niche <laughs> that you've <laughs> discovered there where people don't use the right sort of helicopters. Um, unforgivable, frankly. It's, yeah, it's his its presence in the Vietnam War is historically inaccurate. So uh yeah. and, and don't write in and say that that comment's racist because it's not. <laughs> okay? It's factually correct. Okay, I think that just about wraps this up. Dara, thanks for joining me once again. A pleasure as always, William. (laughs) If you enjoyed listening to the show, for goodness sakes, don't tell anyone. They're liable to judge you harshly for spending your time listening to this drivel. It's far better that we keep it as our little secret. So whatever you do, don't talk about this on social media and under no circumstances should you review this on iTunes. Don't do that. Don't retweet it or send us any money that we've been asking for every week. Don't do that because that will undermine our Christian effort. This is almost like a zealous religious 
cult we've got going on here, Will. <laughs> and I've brainwashed you into continuing uh, your participation with it. And I do hope one day you'll let me out of the cellar. <laughs> one day. I hope to see daylight. Well, that day hasn't come yet. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. And it just, it just totally, that little one moment, I think, said volumes about the, char- the type of character that he was uh, trying to play in this film. Will, I'm going to stop it right there. I just, I desperately need a wee. Can we... <laughs> Can we pause? This is not to be aired on on the on the internet. I'll be back in two seconds. Oh, hello, mate. Sorry about that. Back in the room. I know you've got a problem with your knees, but uh, have you got one with your prostate as well? I've got a very small. I do have to go to the doctor and get it checked once a week. Just, just check if it's still there. That's what I tell him anyway. Well, next time, just goddamn wet yourself, man. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I yeah. just, so I just said about Stephen Delane. My favourite moment was the one where he does that little kind of.